everyone, welcome to the brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast on the Genre Equality channel. My name is Hitzir. I'm Hadi. I'm Aisa. Uh, this month, so much to talk about, particularly the long-awaited live-action debut of a beloved Neil Gaiman comic on mm-hmm. Netflix. We'll be talking about season one of The Sandman, including the bonus episode that dropped last week. Uh, myself and Hardy will be delving into one of our favorite shows on Apple TV+, Plus For All Mankind. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll all be delving into the Predator prequel entitled Prey. Uh, we'll be talking about Jordan Peele's latest thematically dense film, Nope. Um, I'll be reviewing the latest seasons of Tsuka and Birdie, um, a Japanese film called Plan 75, uh, Paper Girls, uh, DC League of Super Pets, mm-hmm. Thousand Years of Longing, mm-hmm. well, 3,000 Years of Longing, um, <laughs> Westworld Day Shift, I Am Groot, so much to talk about here and we can't wait to get right into it. Um, I guess we'll begin you know, with The Sandman Season 1, which I assume the rest of you have seen too, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Yes, I mean, written by Neil Gaiman, the Sandman comic series posits that there is a family of eternal beings more powerful than any god, Mm -hmm. each with dominion over some crucial aspect of human existence. Its title character, known as Morpheus, is the Lord of Dreams, and through Morpheus, his siblings, and their poetic fantasy-slash-adventures, Gaiman spun a genre-defying yarn that helped bring female and LGBTQ readers into comic book shops that had mainly been visited by straight males at that point. Mm-hmm. And it also cemented the whole narrative that comics aren't just for kids anymore. Paradigm shift, you know, going on in the 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. It was mainly Gaiman and uh, Alan Moore and Frank Miller that is, you know, sort of switched the tone there. And despite years of trying, since the comic ended, the very successful comic, Sandman has stubbornly defied adaptation for decades. <laughs> yep. um, its story, too big and ethereal to be condensed into one movie. Its hero, a challenge to make as interesting in three dimensions as he is in the form on, of lines on a page. And, you know, one attempt filled after another. Neil Gaiman grew so frustrated with the process that he began to develop this reputation as a creator who wants all of his work translated as literally as possible. He reportedly had the original showrunners of American Gods, Brian Fuller, replaced because they kept trying to deviate from Gaiman's novel, even though those deviations were pretty much the only parts of that show that worked at all for television. Yep. So finally, after all that, Sandman arrived in film version in a format better suited to hold its expansive narrative, the streaming format, the series format, with Gaiman as a hands-on producer and showrunner. And in many ways, the 10 episodes that are now streaming on Netflix represent, well, actually 11 episodes streaming on Netflix, represent the closest thing possible to bringing Gaiman's earliest Sandman comics to life. Mm. And in other ways, it also illustrates why it has taken so long and why sometimes adaptations need to well adapt to a different medium. This first season is pretty much a straightforward retelling of the first two arcs of the comics. Yep almost slavishly faithful to the text. Perhaps, in some instances, faithful to a fault. Um, let's begin with you, Aisa. What did you think about season one of The Sandman and its faithful adaptation? Oh, man. Uh, I was at once extremely excited and extremely yep. nervous for this particular production, right? Like, yep. Sandman is a very a big part of my 
kind of growing up, I've read the graphic novel like many times over, right? Uh, kind of like religiously pouring over the pages, studying the art, you know, uh, and just kind of immersing myself like in those stories, right? It's been one of those uh, kind of like uh, cultural things that in, in my mind for the longest time, I believe would be nearly impossible to adapt just because of mm. the scale of it and, you know, um, uh, how many of these panels seem to to be so difficult, right, to translate into a, a cinematic uh, medium mm. necessarily. Uh, and then, of course, on top of that, like you already mentioned, right, like I really enjoyed season one of American Gods. Uh, yep. And uh, yeah. for the most part, I agreed with most of the changes that were made. I think they made it a better show necessarily. Um, changes. Yeah. And I, I, I didn't think a big deal about that, you know. And I, I love Fuller's stuff mostly as well. Um, but to hear what happened, to see what happened in season oh. two, um, it gave me a bit of a cause for concern, right? Mm. I, I don't want to mm. see Sandman film. Uh, in fact, I want to see Sandman uh, do great things. Uh, and I think the I wasn't sure when the audiobook came out or the audio play came out. Uh, whether or not that meant necessarily that you know we were one step closer to getting something good uh, on TV or not. Um, yeah, but for the most part, like really excited, was really, really nervous. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember like my heart was beating really fast as I pressed play. <laughs> I sat down on Netflix to yeah. watch that, right? And I like prepared myself for the day. I cleared up my schedule. I just wanted to sit down and make sure like I had a, a good chunk of time to kind of go through everything. Um, yeah, and I think... Um, most of my kind of like concerns were allayed. Uh, you know, I enjoyed it for the most part. Um, I still think that it is not the perfect adaptation, and I don't have an answer mm. of what the perfect a- adaptation would necessarily be. You know, yes, so I do have some things to kind of like nitpick overall, but like, uh, just my initial thoughts, like, mm-hmm. oh man, like what a joy it is to kind of like dive into this world again in a completely different medium. Mm. Uh, do you have similar thoughts, Hadi? Uh, more or less similar. Um, <clears throat> because again, Neil Gaiman is my second favorite author of all time. Uh, Besides Terry Pratchett, exactly. like his good old man's co-author. Yeah. yeah so, uh, I mean, through Terry Pratchett, I knew Neil Gaiman, la. and through yep. Neil Gaiman, I get the Sandman, you know, and uh, yeah, <clears throat> and and all his other works. And so this mm. was again one of those like works where it's very close to your heart. I know we grew up with the Sandman as you know. Not that we grew up with it, but rather we read it in our teens, you know, and it, it kind of gave us a lot of, uh, it influenced quite a bit of our growing up. Uh, yes. So when, and so therefore, you know, not trying to be gatekeeping or anything like that, but there, there, you you want to make, you know, you also want to make sure that you, you hope that it's something good. Well, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, again, American Gods, the first uh, first season like what I used to say great stuff but second season third season it uh, went weird uh, you yeah. know so yes. th- that was a cautionary tale you know and we have so many cautionary tales you know, like Avatar The Last Airbender the movie you know etc etc mm. et where all these very very precious um, <clears throat> precious um, uh, IPs right get you know ripped apart la, sometimes Agreed. yeah but the good thing is that you know Neil Gaiman was very hands on lah uh, mm-hmm. So I feel that he, not that he's a great showrunner because you know he's 
he hasn't proven himself to be <laughs> a very fantastic showrunner. But I think sure. he captured the soul of his comic book character very well in this uh, first season. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, for the most part, in general, very much enjoyed the Sandman mm-hmm. season one. I think I approve of it as a fan. Yep. Um, who knows the source material better than Neil Gaiman? Exactly. Uh, and I think of all the field adaptations, like you mentioned, like of, of beloved childhood properties, like Avatar, etc. right? The Sandman is far away from that. Yeah, it's not God. a failure at all. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, it is in fact a success, mm. albeit a moderate success in my opinion, mm. because I have a few problems with sure. it. Um, book one, Preludes and Nocturnes, the first straight paperback, um, which everyone will remember, was a weird point at which to start a serialized TV show. Um, <laughs> Dream spends almost the entire first episode of his own show sitting naked and silent inside a glass cage. Yep. Mm-hmm. And even once he is out and attempting to reclaim all that Burgess took from him, mm-hmm. the depth of his loss and the importance of his new quest doesn't really land because we haven't yet seen him or the dreaming at their respective peaks. So why, you know, so we don't know, we have no investment in the dreaming or dream as a character yet. Um, It feels like the story is starting in the wrong place Mm. only because that's where Gaiman began it as the first time. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, Morpheus is a challenging character to put at the center of all of this. Yeah. Um, he is aloof, um, unknowable, and largely unchanging. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. None of these are ideal traits in a televised protagonist. Correct. The comics got away with it simply because he was so visually striking exactly. on the page. Yep. And for large swaths of the comic, Gaiman treated Dream less as the hero of the story uh-huh. than as its host. Um, using him to introduce us to characters far more colourful mm-hmm. than Morpheus himself was ever allowed to be. Mm. To a degree, the artful magnetism of Dream in the comics could be channeled by the right actor. Mm. Um, the character could still be inert and frustrating in many ways, mm-hmm. but a performer overflowing with charisma um, you know, that he would put into the role could make it work. Yep. Sturridge, Tom Sturridge, the star of the show, has the right look. Yeah, he does. <laughs> um, but I think his performance unfortunately leans into all of Dream's inherent flaws mm-hmm. uh, that were already there. That wasn't Sturridge's fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just as a you know, yeah. it's just yeah. Those are the flaws of a dramatic leading figure. He is um, the Rose Walker of charisma. He is a charisma vortex and. Don't get me wrong, Sturridge is a really solid talent, solid. but the character would be a challenge for any actor. Um, the series mostly does better when it comes to the people surrounding Dream because the all the characters surrounding Dream are better than Dream. It was that way in the comics mm-hmm. and it was mm-hmm. that way in the series. Mm-hmm. Death, Corinthian, Lucifer, Desire, John D, Hop, Gadling, mm. all the characters from that standout Diner episode, Animated Cats, yeah. um, Calliope, uh, Richard Maddock, are all more interesting characters to spend time with and their actors give sublime performances despite the limited screen times. Episodes 5 and 6 are particular particular highlights. They deliver amazing adaptations of the Sandman's most popular issues, Mm. namely 24-7, and then episode 6 was a combo of The Sound of Her Wings plus Mm. Man of Good Fortune. And its two-part bonus episode, which adapts A Dream of a Thousand Cats and Calliope, were excellent as well. Yep, yep, yep. You know, the former is a cool animated segment featuring a wild assemblage of voice actors, 
Um, a lot of them were meta gamer nods. You know, there was Sandra Oh, there was Jewel Isaac, there was David Tennant, there was Michael Sheen, there was James yeah. McAvoy, and Neil Gaiman himself. Yeah. Um, Tennant and Sheen, of course, star in Good Omens, yep. while McAvoy played Morpheus in Audible's very good audiobook version of the Sandman. Mm-hmm. But in other episodes outside these three episodes of the 11, I feel that the storytelling and the filmmaking is kind of tepid and middling and a bit visually uninspired relative to the artwork in the comic book. Yeah. That the show lacks the atmosphere and the mood that the comics' rotating array of artists so successful, successfully created. Um, Aisa, do you agree with the pros and cons? And if so, you know, yeah. expound upon it. Uh, I, I definitely agree with the standout episodes that you've named, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think, to me, uh, uh, I agree with the lack of atmosphere, for sure. Uh, but for yeah. me, what it was, I think it in particular very pronounced in the first three episodes, right, was the uh, either the, the choice of pacing or the choice of editing as far as how quickly each scene was cut into each other, right? Mm. And I understand that, yes, we are covering what is supposed to be an immense amount of time in the human world, right? Uh, and it is important because of where Gaiman has chosen to start this series, right? Important to kind of like breeze along that so we have a better idea of who Morpheus is even as he is trapped within, you know, uh, this this prison that that has been built around him, right? By Burgess. Correct. But yeah. every time, for the first three episodes, every time there is a scene that I feel is important to linger just a, a little longer, right? It cuts to something else. Right, uh, mm. there isn't enough time for me to settle in, uh, or even process the importance of a given scene, uh, mm. you know, at any one point in time, right? Uh, that and, and it felt way too quick, um, to move along, uh, even, I mean, not so much like the the unimportant aspects of what the story needs at that point in time, uh, mm-hmm. but I don't know if it's because as a fan or as a young adult uh, reading Salmon for the like, second or third time, that I spent yes. a lot of time lingering on every panel and every page, noticing kind of like mm-hmm. every detail. And I was looking for that yep. similar experience. So I think we, are, we have the same point, but how it appeared to me was more of like the pacing mm-hmm. and the editing than necessarily like the cinematic quality of it. I just wanted to luxuriate a bit. Like if you've spent this amount of time and this amount of money like setting up the scene, doing on the shot, all that. Sure, it doesn't, it's not mm. as striking as the inks on the paper, right? Or even like the amazing colouring that we got for some of the, the panels. Um, it, it, you've spent yeah. the time to do all of that. you spent the time to set it up. I want time to be there with mm. this scene, right? If Dream as a necessarily difficult, difficult character as a character as concept, right? Like, dreams essentially as stories and this is a story about stories about stories then like give me time right give me time to sit with him and like see things you know uh, where he is and in his place or like where he is within the greater story and the context of what's happening around him right in a very Mm -hmm. kind of wide radius Um, so I totally agree with those two things right Uh, but when we are given time and I think noticeably it is in episode 5 that for once we settle in a space and we settle mm. on a group of characters. Yep. And we are given time to just spend there because we are stuck there with the characters, right? In 24-7. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 
it really feels like the series comes to what I am looking for uh, in a Sandman adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. um, it's just um, all these things like, and then when we go, because we get that episode and then we go into the sound of her wings, right? Yeah. Even though that feels more, um, I don't know if episodic is the right word, you know, because like uh, on his journey with his, uh, with his sister, he's going from person to person, right? Well, it's a different story altogether already. Yeah, it's a different story altogether, but like yeah. there is a, there is, it's much, it feels much more grounded, right? Mm-hmm. Than the first four episodes that we got. Sure. Uh, mm. You know, and, um, and I mean, episode four, I found it interesting just because in the back of my mind, I'm just like, you know what? Gwendolyn Christie's Lucifer, okay. and I'm not sure what the name of the actress is who plays Mazepin, um, uh, right? I want the Gaiman Lucifer uh, as a future mm. adaptation, right? I'm talking about the bartender one, not the, the trash one that we've been watching over the last couple of years. Hey, come on, Tom Ellis does a good job, okay? No, no he does a Tom great job great, yeah. for for what that show is yeah, I yeah. still want something else right like, yeah, I, I mean still that's, want... a, that's the reason why they couldn't bring him in yeah which is unfortunate but I think Gwendolyn yeah. Christie Grey is a great job and I it think for that particular episode like I will forgive like some of the like pacing qualities just because at that point there are there is a counterpoint to Morpheus right like the indebility of Morpheus his almost like strange vagueness of, of being is counterpointed by something that's very solid and very real, right? Mm. Uh, by by Gwendolyn Christie's Lucifer. Sorry, it's Mazakin. Mazapin is an F1 driver last time. <laughs> yep. Mazakin yes, Mazakin. Mazakin. Yes. Um, yeah, so I, I think I definitely do agree with you on that I point, do. but maybe for me, it just came about in a very different way for mm. the first couple of episodes mm. in sure. particular. Okay. What about you, Heidi? Um, honestly... I kind of understand where y'all are coming from. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, there is, I mean, it, some episode feels very quick, right? Like we're just rushing from a point to another point. Yeah, especially mm-hmm. in the last few episodes. Um, but man, I I I loved the the just <laughs> scenes scattered throughout all the episodes where it just caught your attention. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I feel nearly every episode has that one scene. You know, like episode four is definitely the battle, right? Yep. between Lucifer yep. and Morpheus. You know, that uh, 24-7 is just the whole, uh, that whole, you know, gruesome thing at the end. <laughs> yes. You know, and then, you know, episode 6, you, you, you uh, episode 6 had like two stories, right? There was a, the, the story where he goes back to find the, the friend, Hop. right? Yeah, yeah. Death and Hop Gadling. Uh, they were separate issues that were combined together, which I thought was a very smart choice. Exactly. Me too. Yeah. yeah. And I yeah. love that ending where, you know, he find, he was late lah. <laughs> And yeah. you know you, you, the guy is still alive. The guy doesn't doesn't want to die. <laughs> he still doesn't want to die. You know, <laughs> because he they they really got the wrong guy to give that gift to. Because Morpheus, <laughs> Morpheus is right. A lot of us after hundred years will be like, you know, can you end it now? Yeah, uh, but it's also a beautiful subversion of the immortality story, which always tells us that oh, nobody really wants exactly. to be immortal. Is that is that really true? Because I have always doubted all those cautionary <laughs> tales. Because I I feel like Hop Gadling, right? I don't think there is enough time in the world to experience everything. Yeah, and the guy went through you know a, a century of everything, like You know, success, ups and, ups and downs, you know, and all that, you know, to 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 this coming to this like kind of like nice center space, I guess. You know, yeah, uh, and like it, it, it's very different from like Lord of the Rings, you know, where you had like Bilbo Baggins, you know, who had lived a long life and felt very thin, like spread 
that the famous line where you know like spat thin over bread, you know? Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah, so um, so that that's a great uh thing, lah. Uh, I love the, the all you know the the the, the characters, uh, secondary characters around Rose Walker. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they're brilliantly done and all that. I think casting wise, right? I think this show does, I think a near perfect job in the casting. Okay. Near, yeah. Near near perfect like I wouldn't say everybody's perfect for it. Uh, okay. but like that serial killer seminar uh, convention. <laughs> mentioned brilliant yeah. brilliantly done like uh you know you had <laughs> uh, steven fry's character gilbert right yeah beautifully acted you know when he finally fucking realized where he was mm. yeah uh whatever it is yeah i, I there are definitely force in 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 the first season yeah uh, but i still think uh i enjoy this adaptation a lot mm-hmm. and i'm give i i don't mind i mean there's gonna be a second season right uh, not, not sure. I mean, they not haven't confirmed. confirmed it, lah. But you know, if they do confirm it, I'm quite, I'm quite excited to see what, what they can do with it, lah. Yeah. Um, especially so because um we have gotten part past some of the rougher aspects yeah. of the Sandman story. Yeah. Um, I think Gaiman himself has stated several times that for the first six months of Sandman, he didn't know what the book was. Mm-hmm. He didn't know what Sandman was about, and he only started to find his footing after the Sound of Wings. Mm-hmm. And yep. Much like what Sandman said, the show also found its footing after the Sound of Wings. Yeah. The only issue is that, you know, if you knew that your first six issues were not that great <laughs> and you could have changed it, why didn't you for a totally different medium? Yeah. yeah. I think this might uh, have to but, be, you know, true to the source material, that kind of thing. Uh, but beholden to yourself. I don't know. Okay. <laughs> to the fans, I guess, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, like, I think overall, you know, uh, like alongside... Ellen Moss Watchmen, like I said, The Sandman has long been held up as the comic book least suited for television. transplantation into any media, yeah. not only television or anything. Mm-hmm. And I think Zack Snyder did a faithful adaptation of the plot of Watchmen in a 2009 film mm-hmm. that completely missed the, the point, point. <laughs> politics, <laughs> themes, and social commentary of The Watchmen. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, Damon Lindelof's 2019 HBO series, on the other hand, often deviated wildly, continued on and spec and was speculative, but it ultimately felt much truer to the experience Correct. of reading Sandman. Yep. Uh, of reading Watchmen, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah, absolutely. I think likewise, I felt that maybe the Sandman needed a Damon Lindelof to reinterpret the text for a different age and a different medium. It doesn't need to be a radical reinterpretation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need to be 2019 Watchmen. It just needs to be a little bit different. I've said it a lot, but I feel that Faithful adaptations are stupid and boring. Why would I bother to watch the exact same story play out when I can just reread the original material? Mm. An adaptation should offer a twist, a reinterpretation, mm-hmm. a unique slant of the original material. Because if not, what is the point? There are too many elements of the show that I, I feel don't make sense mm-hmm. in the in the context of TV. All in an effort to faithfully reproduce something that was designed to appear in another format yeah. 30 years ago. The series, mm-hmm. I think for me, Should gets a, g- yeah, gets a pass because of episodes 5, 6, and 11. Mm-hmm. Uh, they offer some of the most moving, interesting TV stories of 2022. But I think otherwise, your mileage may vary, like, in my opinion. So yeah. with that in mind, uh, what are your final thoughts and ratings, Isa? Oh yeah, so I I had a hard time kind of deciding that, right? Like, okay. um, 
as a fan and just kind of my oh, my overall enjoyment, uh, you know, I, I was tempted to give it like an 8 maybe. Um, but honestly, the entire Dream Vortex like arc, right? I was very bored. Um, mm. You know, it just didn't appeal to me. It wasn't as interesting as it was on 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 um on the the panels and the pages of of the graphic novel. Uh, you know, again, I agree with you. It, the standout episodes are truly kind of like outstanding mm. um, pieces mm. of TV. Um, I'm gonna go for a six point five, right? Mm. Because like overall, I enjoyed that. Uh, yep. you know, but um, I do think it's a solid basis for like a season one, and I hope they continue to work on all the other great stuff that's sure. coming on later on. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm. you know, but there were just parts of it that really kind of took me out of like the experience that I desired from a Sandman TV series. Okay. What about you, Hadi? I'm a bit more lenient on this. I think I, I'm giving it about 7.5 out of 10. Okay. okay. Uh, I really enjoy the portrayal of Morpheus most of the time. Mm. Uh, I enjoy the portrayal of a lot of this. I, I feel that uh, the introduction of all the many, many characters that, you know, as the episode goes by, I think it's done very well <laughs> most mm. of the time, you know. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I had... Yeah, my issues aren't that I feel uh, aren't really as uh, serious as you and Hidzaif. Uh, I feel I enjoyed this a lot more for some mm. reason, but maybe mm-hmm. it's just just that maybe just because you know it it felt that it was not bad, right? So that so therefore I'm relieved also. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I understand. so yeah, I, I think a seven point five for me lah. Okay, okay, I would give it. A six out of ten mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. um, for similar reasons to to Isa. Yeah, yeah. Um, so overall, I think we all liked the show to various degrees. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, none of us thought it was great, but we thought it was good. Mm. Um, you know, um, I think Hadi on the high end and me on the lower end, mm-hmm. but we all about have the same thoughts, la. So, mm-hmm. yeah, go check out the Sandman on Netflix. Um, I feel like it deserves a second season for sure because there's only the good stuff from now. Oh yeah, so, I agree. Yeah, we've like I said, we've gotten past the rough stuff, and like all the all the issues after this are all of you know, men of good fortune, Calliope, mm-hmm. that kind of quality, yeah. and and we we can look forward to that in season two. Unfortunately, it's a very expensive show, it is. Oh, yeah. and as we know that um, Netflix is downsizing in a bit, um, so it's still up in the air whether or not Netflix will greenlight a season two because the ratings are good, but not is it good enough to justify that price tag? Yeah, who knows? I hope so. You know? I hope so as well. Yeah. Uh, next up, we are moving on to season three of For All Mankind. Mm. Um, Apple TV Plus's yeah. For All Mankind is a show that makes me remember what I loved so much about TV in the first place. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. seamlessly balances science fiction and period drama, understated storytelling, and pulpy soap opera beats. I have screamed for joy watching For All Mankind mm-hmm. as if I myself was in mission control exactly. and had a hand in landing spaceships to distant planets. <laughs> um, I have howled in laughter. I have leapt out of my chair and paced around the room out of sheer tension. Uh, For All Mankind is one of those few oh, shows man. on television that consistently surprises me with both its spectacular set pieces mm-hmm. and its determination to never leave a plot line behind for better or for worse. Yeah. Um, for the uninitiated, um, because it's such a small scale show, a lot of people don't watch it. I'm going to give you a brief recap about what it is about. Cool. For All Mankind takes place in an alternate timeline where the Soviets put the first man on the moon, triggering a never ending space race and a cascade of other political, 
technological and social changes from the history we all know. The first two seasons dealt with US versus USSR tensions, and then outright fighting on the lunar surface mm-hmm. in season two. The new season jumps ahead to the early 1990s and a new frontier as three separate groups now compete to see who will be the first to reach Mars, the new goalposts. We got NASA, Mm -hmm. we got Russia, and then we got a third wildcard, a tech company called Helios, a private company whose enigmatic founder, Def Ayesa, um, an Elon Musk-type CEO, has long been fascinated with space. And in the course of trying to beat their rivals to the red planet, each group finds itself cutting corners and putting lives and resources at the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, for All Mankind has no such competition. It is the only show of its kind on air. It's not just that its second season was one of the best TV shows of last it year. Was. It's that no other drama on TV is working in the same creative, uh, for lack of a better term, space. It's uh, science fiction, all but it's also a workplace drama. Mm-hmm. And it's also in all history, like you said, a fascinating look at the many roads not taken in history in the final third of the 20th century. It's also a spy thriller. Mm-hmm. It's also an action show. Mm-hmm. And most of all, it's also a big populist crowd pleaser. Seasons one and two were very much an alt history. Mm-hmm. Season three is out and out science fiction. <laughs> For one, there is the whole going to Mars thing, mm-hmm. something that no human being on Earth has been able to accomplish as of yet, but they did in 1994 in the show. Additionally, the season opens with space tourism, one aspect that while we are getting closer to, we are not there just yet. Nope, we're the nascent Absolutely, and for all, Mankind opens in 1992 in the first space hotel orbiting Earth, yep. and eventually fast forwards into 1994 when all three space agencies are ready to go to Mars. Although key point here, the Soviets and the Americans had or- originally planned to go in 1996. Mm-hmm. You know, what is so great about For All Mankind is that it never skims on gorgeous sci-fi spectacle or the human drama, or the intriguing political and technological what-ifs. Yep, yep, yep. And Season 3 continues in that vein. What do you think, Hardy, about Season 3? Uh, season 3, again, builds on the success of the first two seasons. Very much uh, so, yes. The hard science is something that... The hard science fiction is very mm. well done. Uh, it's a bit less hard in Season 3. Yeah, I, I, I mean, because you have to take a lot of creative liberties, but it's still based on a lot of science that NASA has theorised. Of course, uh, of course, it's, 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 it's much harder than Star Trek or Star Wars yeah, yeah, or yeah. the Orville yeah. the Expanse. It's just like, you know, light travel, you know, it's still impossible, like, which is good. La. Correct, correct. All the stuff in For Mankind is theoretically possible yeah, exactly. with, current, with current technology. Yeah, and, you know, the yeah. the experiment, I mean, the, the technology is, you know, just in papers right now, like in the real life, la. you know, in, in studies and all that, in, in theories. So these are mm. what happened when the theories become reality. La. So good for them. Um, and also stuff that already exists now, like exactly. Zoom and touchscreen yeah. phones. You know, they just push it up to the nineties. Yeah, right? it's just that uh, in this in this uh, tech and in this alt history, uh, yep. we have you know technology like fusion, you know where Correct. where therefore you know nuclear technology is a lot safer, blah blah blah, and all that. Um, mm. But what I really love is that due to that, you know, due to the finding of helium three on the moon. And mining of helium three, which is this miracle uh, element, essentially miracle fuel. Yeah, uh, it has caused the Soviet Union not to collapse, la, because now they also have enough money to continue their their regime, la. 
Mm. In our history, obviously, you know, like, they, they ran out of money because of crazy programs. Their crazy space program was sucking up so much money because they're trying to catch up with America. You know, Correct. but in this case, you know, they found Helium 3, they shared Helium 3 together, and we have two very prosperous, a bit different, uh, um, what, so, uh, what do we call that? Uh, political systems. Yes. Yeah, and one of the beautiful things about it, you know, apart from all these big, huge ideas, you know, ideology, like, all this stuff, right, is the characters themselves, mm. I feel, are very strong. Um, we have the evolution of Karen, who was, like, a housewife in season one who mm. was tending a bar at one point, you know, mm. who is now a C, a CFO of, of the third, that's the, the, the tech company, right? Yes. You know, who actually launched the hotel. Uh, yeah, in, she became an entrepreneur. Exactly. You know, with her, her, her second husband. Uh, yeah. Uh, who, yeah. Okay. Anyway. And then, you know, you have your stalwarts like, um, Ed, Ed, you know, who's still the same. Like, yeah, if you went through the least character development, what do you mean Lee's no, no, there no, was no. zero character development? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he still shouts if he's still the angry white guy, you know? And his his <laughs> keep in mind, right, that the ad we know right now is not the 30-year-old ad no, we met three years ago. No, it's the 60-year-old ad. And he looks the same. And I thought that was the least believable part of All Mankind until mm-hmm. I started thinking about Tom Cruise. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and, and then I was like, huh, and also, maybe not lah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And not only that, but you must understand, this guy keeps his fitness up. But not only that, he also takes a lot of steroids. Yeah, dude, the guy is pumping HGH in his ass like every episode. Exactly. The so, first episode, yeah, we saw yeah. him jab his, his butt with the PhD, yeah. you know, most probably. Every episode. <laughs> exactly. So yeah. therefore, why he's still, you know, in such good shape. Um, mm. But then, you know, you have your, you know, your characters like Danny, who has a weird tangent storyline and all that stuff. Whatever it is, it's not only the overarching plot that is, uh, you know, like going to Mars and all that, but really it is the, the gritty, like, you know, office drama between the astronauts, between the, the you know, the people in flight control and all that, which is the most interesting things that's happening. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and that is something that they balance really well because at the end of the day, you really want to see them land in Mars. You really want to see who wins the race and all that stuff. Surprise twist at the end <laughs> in episode 9. Sure. The best. The best. No, don't, don't, don't say that. Yeah, I won't say that. But like, it's, <laughs> it's so mind blowing. Uh, so, anyway, yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. So, all that, right? How they, they tie all that in, right? It's so beautifully yep. done. Um, and I, I, yeah. And kudos to Apple TV, man. I think this is their second best uh, TV series after Severance. Agreed. I'm surprised you didn't see Ted Lasso, which is number three. I think. Ted Lasso is different. Ted Lasso, like, uh, is, yeah, number three <laughs> for me. Like, I mean, that one is more hard, you know? Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But correct. So that's the correct answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I think, like, all the intriguing political, technological, and social stuff only hits as hard as it does mm-hmm. because of the time the writers have invested in the show's characters. Yes. Like you said, you know, we, we have followed Daniel Poole, who was the token black pilot in Onessa, mm-hmm. you know, back in the 60s. And she's now the bona fide leader in space exploration. Yeah, like she's number one. Um, Ellen Wilson, uh, the fresh faced, closeted, lesbian is now the fucking president of the United States. Yeah, beating Clinton. Um, beating Clinton um, in an interesting uh, presidential race, which, which I didn't expect to see in season Same. three. Like, and it also explores the question, what would happen to America, not just with its first woman president in the 90s, mm-hmm. again, something we haven't done yet still mm-hmm. today, but also a lesbian 
And how would that change America's perception of homosexuality way back in the 90s? Mm-hmm. Um, we've seen Margot Madison. Mm, oh, as we already talked about her in Americans. Also. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, she's made the journey from being the first lady allowed to do calculations in mission control mm-hmm. to the woman in charge of all of NASA. Mm-hmm. And in a weird crossover with the Americans, also now an unwitting spy for the KGB. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and following these characters over the decades doesn't just give us an opportunity to see how they've all grown, but how sometimes they've all stayed the same, like at Baldwin. Um, for All Mankind, Season 3 delivers more of what made its excellent Season 2 so thrilling. Yeah. There are life and death situations where only a combination of badass daring do and math can save yeah. the day. Uh, characters, yeah, um, characters come to physical and verbal blows over long brewing secrets. Mm-hmm. There are moments of ecstatic reunion and one bittersweet new romance. Um, watching Zoom calls and the elimination of fossil fuels and stuff like that in the nineties is fucking wild. Um, if there's one spot though, yeah, where for all mankind might frustrate viewers, it's the soap opera beats with the Stevens kids. Yeah, man. Um, we all remember Gordo and Tracy and the season two finale, probably the greatest moment on Apple TV history. Um, first, we have Danny, who is still pining over Karen, oh. getting addicted to painkillers on Mars. It leads to gross moments of incompetence that have dire consequences. Yeah. Then we have Jimmy, who falls in with some proto QA non types who disbelieve <laughs> NASA and you know the manner of Tracy and Gordo's heroic deaths. Um, Season 3 also, in my opinion, does too many time jumps. Yeah. Um, honestly, the plot of this season could and maybe should have stretched for two or three seasons. Mm-hmm. I rarely, rarely complain when a show goes too fast. Mm-hmm. But for all mankind, it goes too fast. Dude. It is in such a hurry to get to the next plot line, yeah. the next exciting milestone, that the stuff in the middle, the process of how it all gets done, and the emotions of the characters during the process gets overlooked sometimes. Agreed. Do you agree, Adi? I agree. That's one of the complaints I had. Like, yeah. we were suddenly in... I mean, uh, there was a huge jump between 1992 to 1994. Yeah. Uh, then from 1994, uh, they were like, then they jumped month, like, uh, months at a time. Six months, nine months, yeah. six months, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they jumped again for like years by the end, right? Oh, the, the time jump at the end I mean, is yeah, consistent with season one, one two, la. La. It's, uh, yeah. it's end of decade jump la. Correct. Uh, but that the month's jump was the irritating one you know that, that five months for example when uh, from the accident to the recovery yeah, yeah I feel that there was a lot more that they could explore perhaps you mm. know and, and, and among the other things la, like the two year jump for example I felt could stretch three episodes you know absolutely yeah, where, where you can really discuss the not discuss but rather you can engineer a lot of stories within that two years of how did they end up there in you know racing towards Mars, you know? That two year jump could have been its own season. Its own season. <laughs> Agreed. You know? Uh yeah. and yeah, so that I felt was one of the things that um yeah season three might have uh, overlooked like that was a bit too fast. Yeah. yeah. Kinda of flawed. Like. Yeah, yeah I agree with you there. I, I agree with you. Agreed. Yeah 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 um Overall, though, I think for All Mankind, it's still very good TV. It it's, uh, again, it, it keeps the trend of like every last two episodes of For All Mankind is fucking mind blowing. It mm-hmm. um, they end their seasons with massive swings. <laughs> uh, genuinely, the last two episodes kind of broke my brain a bit. Mm-hmm. And Ronald D. Moore is so unafraid to go big with left field twists mm. that I can't fault him when some of the twists are 
not good. Like I appreciate ambition rather than you playing safe. So, and this is a very ambitious show mm-hmm. that takes a lot, a lot of risks. And sometimes they don't pay off, but sometimes they do. And I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. This is a fascinating, underrated show that offers a science fiction alternate history on top of great storylines, on top of great VFX, yeah. mostly strong characters and well-written episodes. Mm-hmm. It all works together seamlessly mm-hmm. without feeling like storylines are being sacrificed in the name of spectacle. Sure. If you liked the first two seasons, the third keeps up the momentum despite some narrative missteps. It's a 7.5 out of 10 for me. What about you, Hadi? 7.5 out of 10 sounds good. Uh, I think I'll read that. Well, I'll read, read it at that as well. 7.5. Yeah. Okay. I enjoyed it okay. as much as I, I enjoyed Sandman, I guess. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I mean, it's... I think almost... I have this like Kate Cannon thing, but I think For All Mankind is a prequel to The Expanse. It does feel like that, right? And, and like every season keeps... Confirming this, like they keep adding more and more details, especially like what's happening like, mass right now. Yeah, yeah, and like obviously, like you know, into the two thousands, the militarization of Mars and everything. Um, sure, yeah. Why, why can't this be the the prequel to Apollo Mankind? Yeah. So sorry to to the expense. Yeah, it's it's great, and I'm gonna keep thinking that until they prove exactly. me wrong. Exactly, but can we, can we do a bit of spoilers, please? I want to talk about it so much. Please go ahead. Uh, spoiler warning in three, two, one. <laughs> Fucking North Korea was the first to the Mars, to Mars, and and, no, and nobody knew. Yeah, that's, <laughs> what the fuck was that? that? So for for Isa who doesn't watch the show, um, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> uh, so in episode nine, they were trying to find a spare rover, you know, an unmanned probe yeah. to fix they have a part their, that they need lah. A part that they need, essentially lah. Uh-huh. Like yeah, for, yeah, forget all the techno babble. So, so they go to the un- yeah. unmanned probe only to realize that it was a man probe. There's a North Korean in there and he's been there since before they were. Oh, North Korea God. beat Russia and the US to Mars. <laughs> so what? Wow. what's insane was, okay, because the Rush, they, they, they were fixing a part that needed a Russian part, but the Russian yeah. part was, yeah. you know, lost in space. Uh-huh. So they need, so the only closest thing is North Korea who copies Russian technology. Mm-hmm. So yeah. therefore they went to the Russian, the, the North Korean probe and there was an astronaut, a North Korean astronaut. <laughs> Oh my god! Who's been there for like months. months before they were, you know? And it absolutely like in episode nine, right? It negated all the previous eight episodes. The entire race to Mars was for naught. They did nothing. Nobody was first. <laughs> Nobody. Oh my god! So and also there was this whole uh, Chekhov's gun, lah. You know, they showed Chekhov's gun in episode one actually when they said that the North Korean uh like space they were making fun of the North Korean space technology, lah. They you know they were mm-hmm. failing to launch their rockets mm. properly. The rockets were exploding on launch, that kind of thing. Yeah, like, yeah. Oh, check check off North Korea. Right? <laughs> 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 so then there was this North Korean in in Mars, and he was and and I think he did it. Then he hit it with the best uh, line. I think was that you said that this is more surprising than finding aliens on Mars. I didn't want to spoil it to Hardy because Hardy hadn't seen the episode at the time, yeah. so I texted him. Yeah, like the episode. The end of episode nine will blow your mind. It is legitimately more shocking than finding an alien. If they found an alien on Mars, right, <laughs> that would be shocking. But, But finding hilarious. North Korean on Mars is even more shocking. Ah, uh, <laughs> it's hilarious. But one more last spoiler is the one that they blasted off a woman, pregnant woman, on the top of a, of a space shuttle. What? They strapped it down with duct tape. Um. <laughs> I mean, like it, that's actually survivable according to like all the videos that I've yeah, watched. Yeah, yeah, But is. the baby would not have survived. <laughs> There will be no baby. 
There will be no baby. Uh, she get she gave birth immediately after that. So good for her. Okay, but yeah. but it's hilarious yeah. because literally she's just strapped on and there's a rocket behind her. Okay. Yeah. That was it. It it it, it was like from Wally Coyote <laughs> type of thing. You know? Yeah. I love this show so much, but there, there was so much science behind it to get to that point, though. Like the yeah. engineers were all like you know rushing and getting all this, and then like this one engineer, uh, the, uh actually uh, it was uh what's his name. The girl engineer lah. She was like, uh, uh, Almeida. Almeida was like, uh, leader, leader. Yeah, leader. Where she was like, yeah. mm, why not strap a rocket behind her? <laughs> oh yeah. I love this show. This show so, is the best. Um, I I, I watch a, a reaction channel to the show. It's the only reaction channel out there that reacts to For All Mankind. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's a channel called Celestial Citizens mm-hmm. by two girls. One is an engineer for a private aeronautical company, and the other is an engineer for NASA. Um, and shockingly, as I watched them react to this, uh, they said that that was actually scientifically feasible. Yep. Like, this was a thing that can be done. They just wouldn't advise anyone to do it. <laughs> so I'm, I was actually shocked that For All Mankind was like, that I thought no. this was the most, like, furthest they've gone from real science. Uh, no, but, and it turns out it's not. Yeah. I told you, they do a lot of research. Like, yeah. honestly, this show does so much, like, theoretical research, just taking theor- theories and making it in reality, lah. you know, because that's what you yeah. can do with a TV show, lah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It, it it takes the uh, one step further than the Martian. Yeah, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, recommended, highly recommended. Go and watch For All Mankind if you haven't watched it yet. Absolutely. Um, let's move on to something on Disney Plus right now or Hulu if mm. you live in America. Uh, let's talk about Prey, which yeah. is a prequel to the Predator franchise. Mm. And since its debut in 1987, the Predator franchise has had, <laughs> shall we say, an uneven history. <laughs> Um, mm-hmm. The premise is brilliant in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. Uh, a race of cool-looking aliens with dreadlocks and high-tech weapons who live for nothing more than hunting. Mm-hmm. They travel to Earth in search of prey. It worked particularly well for the first two films, but over the course of more sequels, spin-offs, forays into games and reboots and comics, the idea and the mythology has become so convoluted that it diluted the magic of Predator to a breaking point. Mm. Now, what makes this latest installment so refreshing is that it's a lean, mean return, a back-to-basics approach, focusing on what makes the franchise. Yep. Yeah. A cool-looking alien hunting motherfuckers. That's all we ever wanted. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I appreciate mythology and world building as much as the next guy, yeah. but don't forget about the hunt, guys. That's the key the to the franchise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, the title is Predator. Anyways, this new Predator, um, or prequel to Predator called Prey, is set in 1719, and it stars Amber Midfunder, who you might remember from Legion, mm-hmm. uh, as Naru, a member of the Comanche Nation tribe who longs to be taken seriously as a skilled and fierce warrior. Mm-hmm. Determined to prove her worth, Naru sets out to hunt an unidentifiable creature living on the northern Great Plains. However, Naru soon discovers that the prey that she's stalking is a bloodthirsty alien armed with all manner of advanced weaponry who hunts for sport and glory. Yep. And it has Naru, her Comanche brethren, and other great plain dwellers in its crosshair. Cue Naru fighting for her survival amidst the numerous obstacles put in her way, Predator included, in a thematic coming of age. Hmm. Narratively, Prey doesn't deviate from the Predator series' tried and tested plot formula. Um, basic as the blueprint sounds in 2022, mm-hmm. 
the simplicity of Prey's story is what makes it effective. Yeah. The plot is concise and cohesive in its approach, and it forgoes extraneous story beats to tell a plot that primarily focuses on its two leads, Naru and the Predator. That's all you need. Um, one of the most impressive things about Prey is how patient it is, especially mm-hmm. for an action movie. Yeah. The pacing is reminiscent of the original Predator, arguably the high mark of the, sh- of the franchise, right? Yeah. You don't even see the alien until about an hour in, and up until that point, it remains cloaked and invisible, poking around the edges of the mm-hmm. planes mm-hmm. in search of a worthy opponent. It terrorizes the humans yep. in brief flashes of violence. That's not to say there's no action until then, because there definitely oh, is. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you get there, it's particularly gruesome and gory. But the film does an incredible job of slowly teasing out the main conflict. This is your main event. You don't give it away on like a random brawl, like pardon. But, um, <laughs> like, you know, Naru and the alien will get into it eventually, but you got to save it till the end. Yeah. And Prey forces you to wait for that moment, making the final showdown all the more satisfying. Like the first And it helps. Does. Like the first Predator, and it helps that the Predator is especially menacing yeah, here, man. played by, you know, that tall basketball dude, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, good job by that guy. Okay. Um, Let's let's uh, begin with you, Aisa. What do you think about Prey? Oh, man, I, I enjoyed this so much because, mm-hmm. like, you, again, like he already said, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's so simple. Give me the hunt, right? Give me the hunt. That is what I want, Uh, you know? And as much as, like, I, I think... Predator 2 was an interesting take on like where you know it might possibly go by moving everything into like a, a city kind of urban jungle scape and all of that and while as a kid I really enjoyed the first Alien vs. Predator game because yeah, it was terrifying to play as a marine with aliens on one side and predators hunting you at the same time yep um, you know, like a lot of these things are kind of extraneous, right? Like the moment we head into like AVP territory, I'm just like, okay, whatever. Don't uh, movie it, yeah, it's fine. Sad. You know, um, certainly we can uh, we can Spartan handshake across species, and uh, you know, the universal sign for explosions is the same thing uh, uh, mm. all over the universe. Um, but prey really emphasizes on what. Uh, we are there to look for, right? We're, even though we don't get to see the monster uh, or, or the predator much later in the scene, right? Every part of the process of the hunt is... Uh, it, we have a stand-in for that in Naru, right? And her mm-hmm. brother mm. and, and the rest of the tribe, right? Where there's the stalking and there's the actual hunt and the actual kill and everything takes its time. And it also takes the time to set up all the things that are necessary while dropping all these phenomenal, uh, you know, wing wing or not nods to fans of the franchise uh, as they go yep. about all of that. Uh, in its uh, action moments, it is brutal. Absolutely brutal. They do not shy away from showing, like, just the strength and you know, the, the the power that comes with a, a predator warrior mm-hmm. and all yeah. of that, right? Like they make it the, the power the power scaling is perfect in my opinion, right? Like honestly, there's very little chance in hell that Naru, uh, without using her brains, would be able to to beat some uh, something like that. Hell yeah. You know? Uh, and uh, I think people forget that despite the fact that Ani and his uh, very muscle-out bunch of uh, comrades, uh, as strong as they looked, at the end of the day, that wasn't what won them the fight, or won Arnold the fight, right, at the beginning. 
uh, it was, you know, uh, it was uh, the intelligent use of the terrain, right? Yep. Uh, and it, to be able to see that and all the little, little points in time uh, whereby she learns those things in a very almost process-driven, uh, very methodologic, uh, uh, method way of going about. Um, trial and error. Yeah, trial and error, right? Wow, I love it. Like, it appeals to me... Um, if, in in the way that you know some of the serials that we've we've uh, we've talked about are, right the whole like okay this is the process this is what happens this is how I come to this conclusion yep. and then the yep. fight is such a great payoff because of those moments exactly right? uh, the pacing was fantastic uh, there were moments in time where the stakes even without the predator felt high like in particular when she falls into that bog. Uh, with oh, the yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I I held my breath for a good moment, right, when that happened. Because uh, it despite the fact you know, okay, look, there's another hour runtime here, right? Like she's not gonna die. Um, you know, but that that felt like kind of significant enough and I had been invested enough at that point in time in her succeeding and surviving yeah. so we can get to the fight. Uh exactly. that like even something so simple as that as like treacherous terrain, you know, felt significant enough. So like yeah. I think she, uh Amber Mittander did a great job, uh you know as just kind of like uh I I guess her first outing in a real action thing, I don't know if her role in Legion was necessarily the same vein of that, uh but yeah I thoroughly enjoyed that I think that was enough about like these like super traditional hunting methods you know and just kind of the kind of life that they would have living on the Great Plains. Uh, enough detail, uh, detail there to like make it full and interesting while keeping the premise just solid and like straightforward and to the point. Yeah. What about you, Hadi? Oh, first of all, right. I mean, I agree with everything that uh, I just said. Uh, mm. To add on, right, I really like the accuracy of of the period. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of research was actually put into that, like from like uh, the Native American standpoint. Uh, yes. The whole like, one of the things that didn't have for like horse riding mm-hmm. yeah and they added horse riding because you know it was part of Komachi cal- uh, culture la. yeah you know and that kind of like uh, attention to detail la, you know to the prints to the, all, all the things you saw the Native Americans were using la, from the toothbrush and all that they, they used all were period mm-hmm. accurate and all so I like that kind of detail you know yeah absolutely. Uh, I, I, I appreciate that kind of detail <clears throat> uh, to their weapons also uh, okay so one of the things that really impressed me, uh, I feel, was the, the the way that they went back to the basics of what Predator works. Mm. Right? Yeah. Uh, the monster shouldn't be seen as much as possible. Mm-hmm. You know, mm. It's good that he is, you know, invincible most of the time. Uh, mm. So you can't really see, you know, you only see like um, silhouettes of him most yeah. of the time. Uh, and that final reveal was so good that, you know, <laughs> You know, I, and again, it's a very unique predator because you've never seen this predator before with uh, yep. the, the, that, that kind of more um, older looking mask. Yep. You know, with, and, and this predator feels more uh, visceral. You know, he has less armor on. You know, it's more, mm-hmm. you know, it's more like he's trying to be in the element as well. Yeah. You know, with using as minimal technology as required, like, I guess, whatever. Lah. But that's what you can feel. Like, he was trying to challenge himself. That was yeah. what, you know, he was, and he was going out in power levels as well with the creatures, you know, killing the wolf, killing the bear, you know, trying yeah. to find what was the greatest predator of on Earth. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he might have been the first, lah. You know, whatever, lah. Uh, <laughs> sure. Well, so, but, I'm hoping Prey wipes out all the other nonsense about them coming much earlier in our timeline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The one where they dug a hole into the the uh, Arctic Circle and all that. Right? Yeah, yeah. Fuck yeah, that, fuck that shit. Yeah. Um. Then one more thing that uh I thought was really cool was uh Naru's brother's last stand. Ooh, yes. That was actually a tribute to the the predator when uh the Native American soldier had his last stand as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the thing is, spoiler alert, lah! Their ancestors. He, that is his ancestor. Yeah, I assume he was Comanche. Yeah. yeah, like they, they didn't do it. Like, so now, yeah. By, by so Naru's yeah. brother is actually a direct ancestor of that guy, lah. Oh, in in Predator One. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I just found out also. Damn. So I was like, damn, that that's interesting, right? Uh, and you know, they, and it's not shot for shot, but then you can, it has that same feel, uh, mm. and. And therefore, it just adds a bit of world building into the first Predator, yeah. where they said that that when the guy's uh, last stand, right, why he was like suddenly in this, this trance, right, was because he was remembering when his people first fought the Predator. <laughs> yeah. I just love that. It's ridiculous, but I love that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, this is all the little little details that I really like, and I think helped the film because of how simple the film is. Mm-hmm. You know, it mm-hmm. it doesn't over it doesn't burden you with. With uh, you know, with with weird narratives, with with things that we have to remember and all that, it's a very simple story of, uh, you know, a hunt mm-hmm. gone wrong lah, for the predator because it really gone wrong for him lah. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I. I guess overall, like um, echoing Hardy, the film must be praised for capturing Comanche traditions, mm. language, and culture. In authentic detail, um, I would highly recommend you watch the Comanche dub over the English version. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, the decision to hire almost exclusively Native American and First Nation talent in front of and behind the screen is proof of the filmmaker's desire to faithfully represent yeah. the indigenous people and their way of life. Yeah. Prey makes every effort to reproduce the Comanche society on screen as truthfully as possible, which is great. Mm-hmm. And overall, Prey has a good combat sequences yeah. it's violent and surprisingly poignant and simplistic but effective oh. Prey is the best Predator movie since the 1987 original oh, yeah. it packs plenty into its 95 minute runtime, mm-hmm. simultaneously honoring the Predator films that have come before while freshening things up for a whole new audience um, it's a bit derivative and the plot may seem too simple for some but it's a strength for me Same. yeah um, and I think that this is an entertaining sci-fi flick that Predator fans have spent the last 30 plus years hunting for. <laughs> yeah. So this is a 7.5 out of 10 for me. What about you, Isa? Oh man, yeah. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 as well. Uh, just like, yeah, everything I want in a Predator film, right? Like, mm-hmm. go back to the basics, you know, uh, give me something. You go back to the basics and you give me something new at the same time, right? And like, you just mm-hmm. stick to that. Uh, and then give it lots of love and attention and detail. I'm I'm down. I thoroughly enjoyed this as mm-hmm. for what it is. Right, there was no need to complicate it any anywhere past that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, same. Uh, but I'll give it a eight for me. Oh, nice. Okay. All right. Uh, next, I'm moving on to the first portion of Quick Hit. So I'll be talking about some films and TV shows that my co-hosts have not seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, first off, I'm going to be talking about season three of Tuka and Bertie. Uh, Tuka and Bertie is one of my favorite uh, TV shows, animated or not, right now on TV. Um, the absurdity of adulting 
as a millennial <laughs> continues to fuel the zaniness of Tuka and Bertie. It's created by Bojack Horseman's Lisa Hanawalt, and this absurdist animated comedy blends both drama and humor, tackling complex subjects like addiction and mortality, anxiety and sexual assault through the lens of an anthropomorphic animal society. And there's plenty more fodder to play with in Season 3 as the show expands its cast of characters and storylines surrounding its titular duo. For those of us who enjoy watching the friendship play out between the chaotic good energy of Tuka, who's played by Tiffany Haddish, and the nervous, neutral, anxious vibe of Bertie, played by Ali Wong, mm. this latest batch of episodes is truly a delight. Um, it follows the flood that served as the Season's 2 climactic finale the one that all but decimated Bird Town. And we first meet our dynamic duo with their respective roles reversed. Uh, Tuka is thriving as a chatty tour guide alongside the new waterways that dominate the town's cityscape and Bertie finds herself floundering as a budding baking entrepreneur. It doesn't help that Bertie's boyfriend Speckle, voiced by Stephen Yun, is also moving up in the world, helping to rebuild the city with a focus on affordable housing. Uh, because yes, even though this is a bonkers show that loves to revel in its own craziness, it's a world where a toucan can date a fig tree, sure. void by Matthew Reese uh, from the Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, but that does not mean that it won't comment on pressing modern issues. Um, everything from the cliche of girl bossing to America's broken healthcare system to alcoholism are handled with a levity that feels neither cheap nor exploitative. There's no denying that Tuka and Bertie is at its best when it focuses on the odd couple at the heart of the show. Female friendship is what anchors Hannah Walt's colourful, animal-fueled dreamscape of a show. Even as the two birds struggle to help one another, the love and care they have for each other guides them unconditionally towards their shared goal of merely making it through the day. Depicting a world that is clearly crumbling all around them, <laughs> and a system that seems designed to exploit their every kindness, the Dog Swim series reminds us that we should cherish and nurture the relationships around us, even or especially those that push us outside our comfort zones. It has quirky character designs, mal-a-minute puns, side gags, and an even zanier sense of humor this season. The Tuka and Bertie remains an oddball delight, which is why I'm giving this an 8.5 out of 10. Ooh. Next up is a film called Plan 75. Plan 75 is set in modern-day Japan. No future here. It's set today mm -hmm. in modern-day Japan. And the film opens when the government has unveiled a modest but monstrous proposal to address the country's aging demographic crisis. Under the innocuously named Plan 75, senior citizens, 75 years and above, mm -hmm. are encouraged to sign up for a voluntary euthanasia program. What? It's all made very easy for them. There are sales reps to guide people through the process and a call center to provide emotional support. Uh, those who enroll are given a 100,000 yen handout so that they can make the most of their final weeks of life. And they can opt for mass cremation to avoid the expense of a funeral. This film by Chi Hayakawa puts a realistic spin on dystopian scenarios of 1970s sci-fi movies and it's all the more chilling for it. Mm -hmm. um, caught up in this web are various denizens of different ages and occupations. There is Maria, who is an empathetic Filipina migrant worker who leaves a job in elder care where she takes care of old people for a higher paying work with Plan 75 in order to raise funds for her daughter's heart surgery. 
there's Hiromu, who is a young clerk who believes his work with Plan 75 is a benevolent social service up until his estranged uncle shows up at his desk one day. At the film's heart, though, is Michiko, who is a spunky, independent senior who turns to Plan 75 as the last option after facing discrimination, Mm -hmm. age discrimination, that causes her to lose both her home and her job. So she has no other options. She figures, why not take the handout and I'm going to die in a few weeks? Mm. Why not? Through the journeys of these characters, Plan 75 delivers something at once harrowing in its ambiance, humane at its core, and hard-hitting in its critique against the ageist mores of a cold, pragmatic society. It is tender and devastatingly unsentimental. Chi Haikawa's film is a plea for empathy and kind of a damning indictment of a world that more and more sees people as disposable. It's about the human cost of pragmatic social policies. So yeah, I'm giving this an 8 out of 10 for me. Go catch it at the projector today. It's available there right nice. now. Uh, next up, though, let's move on to a film that we all have seen. Ooh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jordan Peele's latest sci-fi horror film, Nope, nope. is his grandest and most unorthodox yet. Uh, it is a UFO-centric action blockbuster starring Daniel Kaduya, mm-hmm. Kiki Palmer, mm-hmm. and again, Stephen Yoon. Uh, it is well-acted and features absolutely magnificent choreography, cinematography, and sound design. It is also thematically dense and ripe for endless conversation pieces where people like us gather and talk about what it all means. <laughs> it is yeah, a man. very smart film, but it's also very frustrating in some ways, mm. making this Peel's most divisive film to date. Yeah. What did you think about mm. it, Isa? Oh, man. Uh, nope is a ride. <laughs> it is quite a ride. Uh, yeah, I, I do remember, like... Um, after the show, when we were out, just kind of on my way home, mm-hmm. like uh, I was, I was thinking about the show for a long time. Right, it took me a long time to just kind of like process uh, my feelings with all of that. Uh, but just off the bat, the entire experience of just kind of being there, some of the things that struck me um, very kind of like vividly and viscerally was the amazing use of sound design. Uh, to capture the space in which it is set, right? Like you have these mm. kind of like rolling plains and hills in the within the valley. Mm. Um, the use of echo, the use of sound as part of the the device, you know, um, uh, to move the plot along and to to kind of stir the action as well was something that uh, I enjoyed kind of thoroughly. Just sitting there and like taking in the amount of uh, work that they put into that for sure. Um, the thematic explorations that uh, I think hits you, you will probably talk about in a bit and uh, that mm-hmm. you kind of hit on right off the bat was something that only really settled in for me a couple of days later, um, just kind of like processing uh, the entire thing. Uh, nope is an extremely different film from what we have gotten from Jordan Peele so far. You know, yeah. uh, it is um, different in its tone and it is different in what it is trying to achieve in terms of its messaging and the way that the story is told. Um, so it might come, I think, as a shock to some people who are strapped in for like a get out kind of like um, thing, uh, you know, on us kind of thing. Um, the use of kind of like space and uh, the characters that inhabit this particular part of kind of not rural necessarily, what would be a better word to describe that? Um, countryside yeah countryside uh, America really feels like um, 
the isolation that it conjures uh, really places these characters in a sort of heightened sense, right? Like you have a heightened sense of these characters because there's so few other characters involved in this particular story, uh, you know, mm. and it shifts your focus such that you have to pay attention to them much in the same way you have to pay attention to the central mystery of what's going on in the film itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and overall, I enjoyed it. Uh, I don't think it's an easy film to watch necessarily because... Um, there, there are many things that pull you in multiple directions, I would say. Right? Uh, and as far as far like non-spoilery things go, uh, yep. I did enjoy it and would recommend it just so you see where you sit on the spectrum, really. Mm. Uh, because it is, uh, like Hidze has said, a very divisive film. And like it's one of those films that you're going to be discussing like for a while. You know, um, just thematically and what it was trying to say with its message or the questions that it brings up. And even like the the kind of creative choices that were made uh, in making the film. Yes, yes. Um, you know, like they say, everybody's on the spectrum. What part of the spectrum are you on, Hardy? Uh, it's about a UFO, lo, eating things, lah. <laughs> sure, it is. No, it <laughs> absolutely you're right. is. Yes, it <laughs> yeah. is. You're thinking too much. It's just a UFO eating. No, like, it's, uh, I mean, obviously, there's, it's Jordan Peele, right? So there's obviously some deeper meaning behind a lot of the scenes. Uh, I feel that I feel it's not too. I feel that it's not uh, as um, it's not as uh, serious as perhaps uh, the first one. Get out. Yeah, get out. Mm-hmm. I feel this is a bit more uh, westerny kind of homage kind of thing. Yeah, mm-hmm. going on, which I really enjoy too, and I think it's about. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, again, this is not my original idea, but then when I read it, I was like, oh yeah, me, most probably, lah, you know, the, reclaim- the reclamation of like black actors and, you know, and their history with Hollywood and all that stuff. Lah. I think I mm. kind of agree with that lah, once you watch the entire thing. Um, yeah. But I feel that this is perhaps, yeah, the diversive, yeah, it's one of the more diversive films that Jordan Peele has ever made. Lah. Mm. But it's still highly enjoyable though. Yeah, uh, yeah I had a good time. Yeah, it's it's and and like, I love the the little Easter eggs thrown, you know, throughout the film, uh, you know, because you know Jordan Peele is a you know anime fan lah. He's a fan of a lot of things, right? That, I think there was like <laughs> there was an Akira throw uh, uh Easter egg. There was a Evangelion Easter egg, you know. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, he was supposed to direct Akira, the live action one. Yeah. Before he pulled out. So yeah. he, I think he managed to do like one of the Akira scenes. I think it was a motorcycle one. <laughs> yeah, but whatever it is, right? Good stuff. <laughs> yeah. Uh in uh yeah, again on the surface it might be a very simple story of a brother and sister trying to, you know, capture this capture in terms of like video record this UFO lah. Yes. Monster. Yes. UFO monster. Does that make sense? UFO monster. Correct. Yeah. Um on the deeper scale there's a lot of like black allegory lah, which um, will take some time to figure out because I I mm. I still feel that I'm I'm not hundred percent figured things out yet. <laughs> yeah, mm. so yeah, it'll take a while. I think yeah, maybe a second watching or something. I can only watch it once. Yeah, sure. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but I had I had I, a lot of fun though. Yes, yeah, yeah. it is in the end a fun film to watch, mm. like, regardless of its themes. You yep. know? Um. I think perhaps the most interesting or at least the most provocative way to interpret the film is IMO to view it as inherently about filmmaking itself. Mm-hmm. Not just that, but about audience expectations. 
and the unhealthy relationship between fans and arts and tragedy and money. To do this, Peel creates an all-out spectacle that is allegorical. He warns you at the beginning of the film, right, with a quote from the minor prophet Nahum, um, I will pelt you with filth, I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle. It's a movie yeah. about spectacle. Mm -hmm. And though deep in themes, the story of Nope is pretty simple, like yep. Hardy described. Yeah. Um, OJ and Emerald Haywood, uh, played by Daniel Kaluuya and Kiki Palmer, respectively, are siblings and owners of the Haywood Hollywood Horse Ranch. After their father dies from falling debris six months prior, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they are struggling financially, having to sell some of the horses they've trained and wrangled to Ricky Park, uh, aka Juke, mm -hmm. played by Stephen Yoon, who is a former child star who now runs a quasi-amusement park slash rodeo. Um, when Jupe was young, he starred in a sitcom with a chimp <laughs> oh who went berserk yeah. one day and attacked the cast in a bloody horrifying rampage. Yep. Uh, Jupe has, has memorabilia from his childhood sitcom days, charging people a fee to check them out. Um, OJ and Emerald, and unbeknownst to them, Jupe discover an alien creature camouflaged as a cloud. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of shape-shifting animal that usually takes the form of a circular saucer, the archetypical UFO, with a dark hole in the middle and a mouth can, that can suck up people and animals for food. The three of them see the alien less like a threat, mm -hmm. which must be stopped, and more like a financial opportunity, yep. if only they can get proof. Jupe, who already exploits his traumatic childhood, right? Yeah attempts to turn it into an attraction at his park, mm -hmm. while the Haywood siblings, helped by electronic expert Angel and a, a mumbling cinematographer, Atlas, yeah. uh, they deck out their ranch with cameras and prepare for a photo shoot for the alien, if they can survive it. Mm -hmm. With the plot laid out this way, we can see the major theme arise, the commodification of wild animals mm -hmm. and all tragedy. The chimp and the alien are pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm the profitability of using art as a way to capture the horrors of life. Sure. Profit and its relationship with tragedy is such an integral part of the film that the falling object which kills the father is a coin regurgitated from the alien from high in the sky, right? Yeah. Jupe uses the tragedy of his childhood for financial profit and now sees the alien as a profitable scheme and he's sacrificing horses to it. OJ and Emerald see the same thing and their family has a somewhat similar history of turning something awful into lucrative commercial art. They are descendants of the first person to appear in a motion picture. Yeah. A black man riding a horse in H. Woods uh, Murbridge's Horse in Motion from 1878. Yeah. This is a real thing. Mm -hmm. Their opening spiel given by them and their father before them and presumably each preceding ancestor uh, on film sets where they're hired as wranglers, they reference the tragedy that this black man never got the recognition he deserved but that the wrongs can be corrected through the horse wrangling business of his ancestors. Mm -hmm. Tragedy so easily becomes spectacle to be documented and to be monetized. Even the choice to name Kaluuya's character OJ yeah. is fascinating. Is. And OJ Simpson is even referenced early in the film Juice. when a, a blonde white woman tenses up with the mention of his name. Yeah. <laughs> um, OJ Simpson's probable murder of Nicole Brown became a, more, a massive cultural spectacle. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah one which included an epic car chase, um, a lurid courtroom <laughs> drama, and it was watched by millions, yep. along with also many book deals and a successful miniseries and documentary. Simpson even had the audacity to write a book how entitled, I If I Did if It, I did it yeah. This Is How I Would Do It. Yeah. Um, the very first shot of No 
is of an empty section of a studio audience. Rows of chairs beneath the applause sign. Yeah. And the seated viewer watches the empty seats of past viewers on the screen. Like from there, the references to filmmaking and audience members are relentless. You mm -hmm. know? Four main characters are or were in the film business in some capacity. Mm -hmm. The only other main character, Angel, installs cameras and watches the footage from screens. When the four of them unite to find the alien, they're essentially trying to replicate a movie production. It is, yeah. They're setting up cameras, communicating on walkie-talkies, watching the video display. They're waiting for their talents, like, you know, uh, some guy who's, you know, like Johnny Depp trying to get him out of his trailer. Um, OJ wears a hoodie with the word crew on the back from his time working on Scorpion King, which LOL, by the way. Um, <laughs> this is a best film crew. <laughs> uh, first and best are not the same thing. Uh, this, is, uh, this is a film crew and they're making a movie. The alien is the subject. But maybe, I think in my opinion, what Jordan Peele is trying to say, the alien is us, the audience. Mm. Because Angel refers to the alien as the viewer or viewers, it hovers above them, looking down at what looks like an eye, with what looks like an eye, yeah. but it's really a gaping mouth, consuming everything in its path. Mm -hmm. it, OJ tries to control it, you know, to wrangle it the way he wrangles horses, yep. uh, to tame the beast like the chimp, though some animals ain't fit to be trained, like one character says. You know? mm -hmm. I think in this day and age of fan outrage and expectations and discourse, pretty much ruining the art of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. It makes sense that studios and filmmakers would want to tame the fans. They fear them, but at the same time make a huge profit from them, just as the characters in Note both fear and profit of the alien. Is the alien us, the viewers, the fans, the content consumers devouring art and turning all media into empty calories? There's, of course, arguments to be had of all sorts regarding what the alien represents. It could be tragedy itself, something awful that everyone is looking to monetize or like Hardy said it could just be an alien eating shit yeah. you know <laughs> um, but I, I mean the there's a thing... beauty of it I think mm -hmm. right yeah. right uh, and the one thing that I think backs up like my interpretation is that the one thing that seems to throw the viewer off mm -hmm. right is when a character refuses to look at it yeah the viewer gets confused or passes over OJ and Emerald when they are steadfastly staring elsewhere mm. the Haywoods can make their film and survive only if they stop looking at the viewer it's like how I think Peel oh. being burdened by the weight of audience expectations after Get Out being called the new Spielberg and all of that, mm. you know, can only make his art if he stops looking to the fans and the ridiculous amount of expectations they feed upon him. Do not look at your fans. The thing is, no piece of fascinating movie to think about. I've spent hours trying to understand the film and the more I think about it, the more I like it. But is it successful as a pure movie-going experience? only to an extent. Mm. Um, would you agree, Hadi? Yeah, to an extent, you're right. Um, but yeah. like I said, when you like strip out the, I mean, if you just think of it just as a alien-eating movie, right? Does mm. it work? I feel that it does to most of, to a large extent. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Sure. You know, like, is it entertaining? Is that, you know, it's very, it, it is, uh, it does engage you throughout the, 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 the runtime of, uh, what, 105 minutes, you know, 120 minutes, yeah. right? So I think it engages you throughout. And I think, you know, uh, I, I still feel this is a successful Jordan Peele outing. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just that uh, it mind fucks you a bit like, if you, 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 you really put your... I mean, once you start thinking about what you're watching. Mm. Sure. Yeah, but overall, I feel that uh, it works as a film to an extent. Right, yeah. right. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, what about your thoughts, Isa? And then you know, give your rating at the end. Of Wait, it. can I give my rating? Oh yeah, yeah. Please go, go ahead, Adi. Uh, I'll give give you a seven point five uh, out of ten. Yeah. Cool. Uh, Isa. Yeah, as as on its own as a film, right? Like a- apart from the message that it's trying to say, and like whether or not like as an alien film, it does deliver spectacle, right? Which I appreciate. Uh, there is. I mean, like, I, I've seen some people talk about, like, you know, how it, it swerves a bit too much, it reels a bit too much, like, it's confused in its own kind of way. Uh, and um, it depends on whether you want to ascribe that as something that's done intentional by Pew, right? Uh, because uh, on the many levels, right, that's what audiences are today, right? They are distracted, they, are, they reel and they pull away from things, right? Like, we, we cast our nets wide and in terms of the things that we consume as well. So if all of those things are like additional kind of meta-narrative, amazing, great, genius, uh, um, good stuff. But the actual experience of sitting there is uneven uh, in its totality. But because mm-hmm. I am enthralled more often than not, uh, and I walked away with a lot to chew on and something impressed upon my being both emotionally and mentally. Uh, yep. I, I would say that it is a success by by all for all intents and purposes, right? So I'm also sure. giving this a 7 out of 10. 7 out of... 7.5 out of 10 for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're all very close in our mm-hmm. ratings. Yeah. Um, I think as a, as a spectacle, about the emptiness of spectacle, yep. um, I think it intentionally swerves the viewer to that extent mm-hmm. to feel disappointed by the emptiness of its own spectacle yep. as, you know, meta-messaging. Um, I think it does that as a pro and it's also a con, yes, uh, to be honest. Absolutely. So yeah, which is why like we have like a good but not great reviews for it. Yeah. Um, anyways, I'm moving on to the second part of uh, Quick Hits. Oh. Uh, this will be a lot shorter because I either were disappointed or felt <laughs> meh about most of these titles. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, let's move on to Paper Girls, which is actually a comic book I reviewed way back in general equality. Oh, I yeah. love this comic book. Um, this Amazon time travel adventure based on Brian K. Vaughan's amazing comic book series, which I gave a glowing 10 out of 10 review you know, mm-hmm. back in GE21. Um, in my opinion, Paper Ghost is the best BKV comic ever. Mm. And that says a lot, yep. considering he's also the creator of Saga, yep. Why the Last Man, yep. Ex Machina, Runaways, and more. Yeah, yeah. So I had high hopes for the show. Yeah, the story revolves around four paper delivery girls who are accidentally transported into the future by battling time-traveling factions during a fateful Halloween night in 1988. On the plus side, the character work in the show does the comics justice. Mm. They are well-developed and the emotional arcs are for uh, for each of them quite potent. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the nostalgic coming-of-age elements never really feel integrated into its epic sci-fi saga. Yeah. Um, the problem is whether due to budgetary limits or a desire to streamline the comics, the show flattens the look and the scope of the story into something dull and derivative. Mm-hmm. Um, gone are the clean lines and the gooey gore or the vivid colours of uh, Cliff Chang's artwork and is replaced with quite honestly mid-budget CW-level cinematography and VFX oh, yeah. that feel messy and drab even before... It, yeah, especially the VFX really threw me off. It's very... It looks very, very cheap. As In this day and age in 2022, it looks like it could have been made in the 90s. Oh. Yeah. Um, the plot is also simplified to a startling extent, making the show seem way dumber than the comics. Uh, so it's only a 5 out of 10 Aww. for me. Uh, next up, I'm going to talk about DC League of Super Pets. 10 out of 10. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the latest DC animation is a surprising one. Um, it's an animated comedy about an animal team led by Superman's dog, Crypto. Crypto. 
Uh, Crypto, the Superdog, and Superman are best friends, sharing the same superpowers and fighting crime in Metropolis side by side. Mm -hmm. But when Superman and the rest of the Justice League are kidnapped, Crypto must convince a ragtag shelter pack uh, to master their own powers and help him rescue the superheroes. Mm -hmm. Um, Despite some adorable animals and a snarky sense of humor, DC League of Super Pets is only intermittently amusing. It has a fun voice cast led by The Rock and Kevin Hart. Yeah, man. but in the end, I think this is the kind of lazy effort that squanders his <laughs> characters and will likely bore anyone over the age of nine. Aww. In my opinion, so it's a, it's a four out of ten for me. Uh, give this one a miss. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking... Oh, sorry? You wanted to say I something? say fine. Oh, okay. I mean, it's the rock class, so I'm sure you can watch it. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Um, it's better than Scorpion King. I gotta say that. Um, <laughs> a lot of things are better than the Scorpion King. Not a sure. Uh, yeah. Next up, we'll be talking about a movie that is not yet out in cinemas, but mm. will be released on 2nd September. Uh, so the day after this recording is released. Uh, 3,000 Years of Longing is George Miller's latest film. It follows uh, Dr. Olivia Binney, played by Tilda Swinton, mm. who is an English academic attending a conference in Istanbul. One day, she happens to encounter a djinn, played by Idris Elba, who offers her three wishes in exchange for his freedom. This presents two problems. First, she doubts that he is real. And second, because she is a scholar, she is a scholar of story and mythology, she knows all the cautionary tales of wishes gone wrong. The djinn then pleads his case by telling her fantastical stories about his past to, wor- to put her worries at ease. The djinn tells Alifia the story of how he ended up in a glass-blown cell, a tale which spans dynasties, continents and millennia Ooh. it's partly a love story with Tilda Swinton and Indris Elba spending most of their time in a hotel philosoph- philosophizing Good. Um, <laughs> in this respect it isn't a particularly successful intellectual exercise because while Alifia and the Jin debate continually they're only kind of surface level meditations um, mm. uh, before sunset for children um the movie is though far more successful as an Arabian Nights collection of short stories. Oh, okay. um, it's, in f- it's in this vibrant, fantastical flashbacks of the Jin's past that Miller's see, uh, visual invention and his sequences comes to the fore. You know? Each of the Jin's tales transports the film far beyond the confines of the hotel room. From, there is, you know, uh, he, he takes you back to the, to the time of the Queen of Sheba in her court. Um, a world of magic and myth made real. He takes you back to the Ottoman Empire and 19th century Turkey. Um, each fable is enchanting flights of fancy. And 3,000 Years of Longing is the kind of playful adult fairy tale that's kind of all but extinct in the era of franchise blockbuster filmmaking. It's enjoyable, but not perfect. So it's a 7 out of 10 for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up is Westworld. I believe it is season 4 right now. Yes. Uh, um, I am no... IT expert or anything, but did anybody ever consider unplugging Westworld and then plugging it back in? <sighs> um, I ask because this show seems very, very broken. Oh, um, I haven't caught the latest for, season yet. Well, nobody should. Um, <laughs> for, for a show which, in which nobody can really ever die, or if they do die, they're brought back as robots, and after the third season, anybody can apparently change identities with the flick of a switch. Uh-huh. Yeah. HBO's Westworld is extremely bad at resetting itself, oh, no. despite all its characters resetting itself. You know, um, it, as this fourth season begins, Westworld, Westworld has settled into what is now a comfortable routine. Take a couple of episodes to establish the new normal after a multi-year time jump. Mm-hmm. 
even if that amount of ex- exposition is completely unnecessary or woefully insufficient, um, finds an inter- interesting rhythm for a couple of episodes mid-season, and then it unravels into convoluted chaos, wherein it becomes clear that nothing really matters, nothing makes sense, uh, and it becomes even clearer that there are no meaningful stakes because nobody ever really dies. Mm. Uh, and then everything is hand-waved hand away with Techno Mamba Jumbo, and then we, we go on to Season 5. It has become... I don't say this lightly, but it's become Tenet level stupid. No! Um, so, yeah, it's very nonsensical. Actually, Tenet is not nonsensical. It's actually very simple. It's just... It's Convoluted. Very stupid. It's, it over-convolutes to, to hide the simplicity and stupidity of his story mm. uh, and the lack of emotional stakes and real character arcs and uses its complex structure to hide its stupid plot. It's 1 out of 10 for me. Uh, 1 out of 10. Wow. Yeah. Um, next up, I'm going to be talking about Day Shift which stars Jamie Foxx as a vampire <laughs> hunter. I think Isa has seen this yeah, one. I've Maybe you want to have a couple of words about this? Uh, I mean, like, it's, it's serviceable. Right, yeah. uh, Jamie Fox is entertaining on the big screen. Right, he basically plays a, another version of himself. Yeah. Uh, as yeah. far as like vampire law goes, he gives a little bit, which is good enough. Uh, as sure. far as like interesting kind of like action scenes involving vampires, we get we 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 get a lot of action scenes. Yeah. Uh, um, some of them like very well choreographed. I think the one the driving the scene, nest, dope. The driving scene was dope. The yeah. scene in the nest was dope. Yeah. Uh, you know, like it was like packed full of action and all that. Like uh, all in all, like it gives you a simple kind of like premise and you know delivers on the action and Same. it's it's possible. Uh, so I'm I'm I enjoyed it. It's nothing phenomenal. I'm just gonna give it like a five point five or a six out of ten. Yeah, six six and a half. Like it's a fun time. Mm, yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, you all are absolutely correct. Yeah, that's about <laughs> it. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about I Am Groot on Disney+. Plus. Um, I Am Groot, you know, um, after stealing all of his scenes in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume yeah. 2, the adorably chaotic baby Groot headlines his own mini-series. Um, this is MCU's second fully animated series, mm-hmm. and I Am Groot is unique because it only consists of five short episodes mm. made up of three-minute episodes. Yeah. Very, very short. The whole show is 16 minutes in total. Um, seeing as everything is set between Volume 1 and Volume 2, the small-scale nature of these vignettes leaves the door open for some very wild stories, but inconse- inconsequential stories. Like. It's fun, it's cute, it's wacky, and Baby Group brings chaos everywhere he goes. It's quite adorable. Not essential, but it's a breezy watch, so it's a 7 out of 10. Yeah. Uh, next up, I'm going to be talking about Pengabdi Satan oh, Duo Satan's, Communion. Satan's, Satan's slaves. slaves to Communion. Yeah, um, it follows the enormous success of 2017 Satan Slaves, which was the highest-grossing Indonesian movie ever directed by Joko Anwar. And he's back with a sequel that expands on the first movie as part of a much bigger storyline. Um, okay. In terms of technology, uh, in terms of technology too, it's, it's pretty big because this is the first Indonesian film to be filmed entirely in IMAX. Whoa. Um, in Communion, we learned that the Suwono family is now residing in a 14-story flat, like HDB flat. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I know it's not HDB in Indonesia, but you get what I mean. Yeah, it's right? an apartment building. Yes. Apartment building, yeah. And, and um, Rini's dad, from the first movie, his dad believes that living in a flat is safer since there are so it many other residents yeah. in case of emergency. You know, fuck living in an isolated forest you know, or the suburbs. Sure. Let's live in a flat where there's so many people. <laughs> and much... <laughs> However, one stormy night, the ghosts of their past somehow returns to haunt them again. Yep. And they have no place to go because of a severe thunderstorm, 
the entire ground floor is submerged in flood water. So Rini and her family are once again trapped and are forced to survive a terrifying ordeal. Uh, the film begins in 1950 and moves into the 1980s, and it does a great job at uh, setting its period pieces, uh, um, establishing tone and a creepy atmosphere. Uh, Joko Anwar's deliberate build-up establishes the overall geography of its environment, of its 1980s flat location very well, showing us you know, the dark corridors. It's, so dark. it's laying... It's laying the groundwork. It's like the worst HDB flat you can ever be in. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it's. I, I think it's the building that they shot the raid in. It it oh. looks like that, yeah. Yeah, really? yeah. So it, okay. I, and the way that he lays the geography of the you you kind of know oh this is where the jump scare is gonna happen later you know it's coming but then you know like it's a nice it's a it's a good setup. Mm. Okay. Um, there's an elaborate set piece leading to a gruesome elevator incident that's easily the best scene in the sequel. It showcases Joko Anwar's skill in escalating tension and suspense. There's even an only murders in the building type subplot no. that involves the residents investigating a mystery which might connect with the ghost. Oh, wait, yeah, yeah. Um, I saw this on the trailer, actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, like the first, Anwar's, uh, Joko Anwar's tendency to use elegant long takes is also something that distinguishes his film from his Southeast Asian horror contemporaries. He's just a more... He's just a better craftsman mm. than, than everyone else in Southeast Asia right now. Sure. However, not everything works in communion. Oh. A lot of the jump scares, I'm going to say 99% of the jump scares tend to feel random oh. and surprisingly cheap. A lot of them are even predictable at times. And several of them just flat out recycle moments from the first movie. Mm. Um, another big flaw is that the film could have been trimmed a fair bit. Okay. The movie is bloated by a lot of filler and perspectives from side characters that weren't necessary. So overall, a bit more of a mixed bag than the first. Mm. I'm giving this a 6 out of 10. Okay. Finally, I'm going to be talking about Samaritan. Sylvester Stallone stars in this superhero movie on Amazon Prime. He plays a super strong superhero loner who a young boy named Sam, uh, who's played by Ashtray from Euphoria. I don't know his name, but he's, he's Ashtray. R.I.P. Ashtray. Um, spoilers for Euphoria, sorry. Uh, um, so this kid Ashtray, Sam, uh, believes that he, he finds this old man. He believes him to be the superhero Samaritan. Um, a few decades prior, uh, they live in Granite City and it was plunged into chaos because of a pair of invincible twins uh, in metallic costumes. One brother, Samaritan, supposedly fought for good while the other dubbed Nemesis wreaks havoc with a magical hammer forged from his hatred of Samaritan. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure how that works, but okay. Uh, both are believed to have perished in a fire uh -huh. and despite neither one being seen for decades, they have left this uh, indelible mark on the city. Some think that Samaritan's, uh, Samaritan is a hero uh, and hate ne uh, Nemesis as a villain. Others, like a local gangster and many others, believe that Samaritan uh, could have been a protector for the rich and powerful, whereas Nemesis was more of a, a fighter for the people. Uh, now, this young kid Sam tries to convince Sylvester Stallone to come out of retirement to save his city. Uh, none of this amounts to very much, mind you. Oh. It's a, it's a start-to-finish snooze. Um, its appeal hangs on a late reveal that you can genuinely see coming two minutes into the movie. Um, it is a hodgepodge of non-ideas borrowed from other better movies in the superhero genre and in the superhero satire genre. Mm. Um, absolutely nothing about this movie is worth a watch. So 0.5 out of 10? No. Uh, I, I gave it 0.5 because it's Stallone and I just have a soft spot. Yeah, that's right. Hands. I have a soft spot for Stallone too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So you know. Um, oh well. Oh man. Uh, finally, for today, we're gonna wrap up with a catch-up of Star Trek Lower Decks and Star Trek Prodigy. Um, I'm excited to talk about these two shows because I've actually, despite being a Trekkie, I have um, 
I have woefully overlooked the animated shows from Star Trek. Sure. Mm. Uh, I did not follow up on Lower Decks after season after watching season one, and I didn't watch Prodigy at all last year. Oh. Thankfully, though, I have finally caught up, yeah. and now I'm ready to talk about it. Uh, in good time too, because Lower Decks just premiered Century. its uh, third season uh, just last mm-hmm. week. Um, let's begin with you, Hadi, because I think you've been watching this uh, throughout. You yeah. Know. Um, what are your thoughts about Lower Decks? Lower Decks. Star Trek? Uh, I think we all had a problem with Lower Decks when it felt like a. Rick and Morty ripoff, yeah. Like they just felt very lazy and very like trying too hard, lah. Yeah. To be something is not. Yeah. Uh, season two rectified a lot of that when it became its own like show, lah. You know when mm. when they when they doubled down on the character development of a lot of the the, the crew. Um, mm. when they had really good episodic uh, adventures where they they they. they Actually, I mean, even though it's like in a more comedic um, setting, you know, yep. they, they discuss, you know, AI, they discuss uh, first contact and what happens after first contact, you know, mm-hmm. the, the repercussions of first contact, uh, things like that, la, which make it very tricky la, in, 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 in its own way, la, you know? Yeah. Yeah, which I really enjoy. And, uh, and you can't help but kind of slowly love the, 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 the characters here because they aren't your typical, you know, Spock and Kirk and, you know, uh, Upper Deck guys, lah, right? Bridge. The, yeah? Bridge crew. Yeah, bridge crew, you know, the guys that you don't really hear yeah. about, lah, but in their own way have duties that are really important. Lah. Sure. Yeah, you know, and, uh, and therefore they have very weird adventures, lah, which is very different from Upper Deck adventures, you know? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, and some of the ship itself is uh, is this underdog kind of feeling because the ship itself is an underdog ship, you know. It's mm. not the it's not the Enterprise, it's not the Titan, it's not the Voyager, you know. It's not yep. the Discovery, you know. Is this <laughs> weird ship called the Cerritos, which is a California class ship, which is old yeah. and which is you know uh, it's it's slowly being phased out and all that. Yeah, so it has that charm of uh, an underdog story throughout uh, season two. You know where the there there is still important ramifications in terms of of federation uh, politics in terms of space politics and all that, mm. but uh, but then like less important than sure. than the more the the usual Star Trek stuff, but still important enough that you need someone needs to be there to 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 make sure it's get done lah. You know. The diplomacy, sure. yeah, 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 you know that kind of thing. So it it, it balances really well, and everybody yeah. loves a good underdog story, you know. Especially you know how uh they they solve their problems using brains like intelligence like you know instead of brute force. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I always enjoy whenever Star Trek does that. It always gives me you know the chills. Absolutely, yeah. you know, like if you recall, like last year, I was quite nonplussed by the first season of Lower Decks, yep, yep, right? Yep. I liked the concept, but it was this animated workplace comedy focusing on you know the lowest ranking officers of a low level starship, yeah. not the lower, not the lowest ranking officers of a high level starship because there's a TNG episode also called Lower Decks about yeah. that. You know? But what about the low ranking people and even lower level starships? Exactly. Right? It was interesting, uh, but I was bothered by its clunky execution. It Same. just felt like a lesser version of Solar Opposites or a lesser version of Rick and Morty. Exactly. Just propped up by a ton of. Star Trek specific jokes and thankfully the show turned, its, turned around its focus you know season 2 was very very fun and much like the original Star Trek animated series from the 70s mm-hmm. Lower Decks uses its format to as a license to poke into familiar track tropes mm-hmm. 
from different angles. It grounds meta humor with a likable cast. Yes. Each have well developed arcs uh, in season two. In addition, the show handles canon and continuity fantastically, yeah. often better than its live action counterparts. Yeah. It acknowledges shifts in status quo while making sure that each individual's episode also stands out as its own discrete, satisfying story. Mm -hmm. The thing I love most about Trek is its fundamental optimism. Yes. At the start of the first season, there was some question if it could maintain an effective mix of Rick and Morty-style meta-humor, which depends on constant undercutting of convention mm -hmm. and a boundless contempt from, for everything. Rick and Morty is a fundamentally nihilistic show, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. And that's a nihilistic type of humor. Mm. And can it balance that alongside Trek's European vision of a future where things really can work out, basically, if people and aliens work hard enough and try to understand each mm -hmm. other? The solution the show eventually landed on was to balance its intermittent burst of cynicism with fundamentally good-natured leads and a seemingly boundless enthusiasm for itself. Yeah, I've never seen a show love Star Trek more than Lower Decks. Yeah. There is no other show out there, besides the Orville probably, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that is so proud to be a Star Trek show. Yes. The writers are pulling out the deepest, deepest, deepest cut. cuts, references for troll for throwaway jokes. Yeah. Uh they, they show they show season one of uh sorry, season three, episode one. Yes, I so you know like in the beginning there were all the news feeds, right? Yeah. And then at the bottom there was the there was you know the little ticker yeah, on yeah, the news feed yeah. and, and about there was a riot at a concert. Yeah. Um, there was a season one episode where one of the engineers um, left Starfleet because his passion was in music. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then it turns out, as we learned on the ticker, that he actually became a, a great musician and there was a riot at his concert. Mm -hmm. So it, it's super deep cut jokes like that, you know, from a throwaway season one TNG episode that nobody remembers. Yeah. That, like, I love. Um, it's canon. It's canon. It's clearly canon, yeah. you know. And as much as he likes to make fun of certain silly things about Starfleet, in the end, it embraces Gene Roddenberry's exactly. vision way better than Picard or Discovery. Yep. Uh, at its best, Lower Decks comes across as, you know, cheeky nods to the past that pay homage without completely losing sight of the present. And even better, they add complexity to familiar concepts yeah. like, second, uh, like second context and stuff like yeah. that. Uh, in ways that enrich the show's approach to track law. Exactly. Um, it also helps that I think the overall joke writing has improved a lot from the from the start of last season. Uh, I think the show has found itself, like most track shows, if they find themselves in season 2 and 3, yeah. Lower Decks continues in that fashion. Yeah. For some strange reason, that's a track curse. Season 1 will always be bad. Uh, it's been broken by... It's been broken though. Uh, strange oh, World, Strange World, season yeah, one. season 1 actually is good. Yeah, <laughs> but That means the other seasons might be bad. I mean, you, don't, you never know. Yeah. Like, Strange New World Season 1 is legitimately one of the best Star Trek seasons I've seen from any show. Yeah, yeah, true. Um, and I'm a bit afraid. Like, if, if I hope that this is the worst of them and it gets better from yeah, there, but true. I don't see how they can because it's so amazing already. But okay. oh well, um, let's move on to Prodigy. You know, um, Like Lower mm. Decks, the first season of Star Trek Prodigy is also an animated show. But not targeted but at two... us, this one. Say again? This one not really targeted at us, lah. No, yeah, yeah, it has two key differences. Namely, this one is aimed squarely at 10 to 15 year old kids, mm -hmm. and it's the first track show to solely use 3D animation. Yes. Um, so, what is the show about? It's set in 2383, mm -hmm. five years after the Voyager returned to Earth yeah. at the end of Star Trek Voyager, the series. It follows a motley crew of young aliens in the Tars Lamora prison colony. The characters are all essentially begin as child slave laborers who grew up on a prison planet. However, one day, a few of them find an abandoned Starfleet ship, the USS Protostar. Yep. They take control of the ship, 
they must learn to work together as they make their way from the Delta Quadrant to, to Delta. the Alpha Quadrant. Mm-hmm. Um, why do they want to go so far from the home quadrant? Well, well besides the fact that there are fugitives on the mm-hmm. run, they are actually inspired by the ethos of the Federation yeah. when through the ship they stole, they learn about the values that Starfleet stands for. Mm-hmm. For example, the ship comes equipped with a training hologram modeled after Captain fucking Janeway, <laughs> voiced by her actual actress, is, yeah. um, and designed to help new cadets. Mm-hmm. Star Trek at its core has always been about connections, people who couldn't be more different, setting aside differences and working together to solve problems. Mm-hmm. This is what the show is about. Yes. It's a group of kids from very different cultures, cultures and races that we don't know about because we, we are based in the Alpha and Beta Quadrant, yeah. right? We don't... Next to, besides Voyager, we know next to nothing about yeah, the Delta exactly. Quadrant. Yeah. And all these are new races, you know. And they're learning to work and grow together as they search for a better life and explore the stars. Mm-hmm. Like the crews on various Star Trek shows, the Protostar crew becomes a surrogate family. And this is, this is very unique for Star Trek. This is the first Trek series mm-hmm. to have a cast completely composed of aliens. There are no humans on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Correct, correct, correct. That only underlines this fact. Everyone from the captain to everyone down, right? They're all alien slaves yeah. and they're all aliens. There are no humans on the show. And the only humanoid is a hologram. It's a Janeway hologram. That's it, yeah. you know. I mean, I love the, like, the, 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 guest, the, the, the guest holograms, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah all, all, all Voyager cameos. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, um, and, and over time, each member of the crew finds their own role on the ship, which is important, as Star Trek always puts the focus on different roles within a starship's hierarchy. I mean, think about how many times Jordi LaForge used his engineering skills to save the Enterprise, mm-hmm. or how many times Montgomery Scott uh, beamed his crewmates out of danger in the original series. Yeah. Prodigy takes things a step further, which with each member of the crew choosing a role, not being assigned, choosing a role that happens to utilize their natural talents. Exactly. Prodigy is great because it explores the concept of Starfleet from the point of view of teenagers who have not even heard of it. Therefore, it is a perfect show to introduce teenagers to Star Trek, who who also have not heard of Star Trek. I mean, All in All Prodigy is one heck of a show with great visuals, great action, and filled with the type of moral and ethical conundrums that Trek is known Mm -hmm. for. Um, Do you agree, Hadi? Have you seen Prodigy? You've seen it, Yes, I have. Uh, But I I haven't finished it yet, though. Uh, okay, but, okay. Um, yeah, again, I agree with all of that. Just the fact that, you know, it's an all-alien cast, there's something... I wouldn't say cute, but red, I think it's important. Um, yes. Because, you know, humans have always been the centerpiece of uh, every such Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is kind of that, that you know, the ability... F- I, I mean, again, because it's targeted at kids and all that, right? Uh, right. It, it is, in a way, a very good introduction to what the ethos of Star Trek is uh, mm. without having to like really hit it, hit you over the head with it. Um, yes. I feel that a lot of the, 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 the little issues like the crew have with one another and all that are solved very well. Mm. Uh, solved with, again, with uh, intelligence, with, uh, you know, using science, engineering and all that kind of thing. Lah. Which, again... Yep. Yes, I mean, it's a Star Trek show. That's where, you know, diplomacy and all that comes into play. Yeah. Uh, I feel that this is, uh, again, because it's unexplored, right? It's in the, the, the Delta Quadrant. Uh, yes. It gives this, the, the, the show a lot of uh, room to, to do a lot of things without having to be kind of pinned down by, you know, law and like, you know, whatever has yeah. come before. Yeah. 
Yeah, you don't have to remember like oh, oh when was the Romulan Balkan no, War yeah, or whatever. Yeah. These are all like new new species. Exactly. Right? And yeah. still they have little Easter eggs here and there which is beautiful. Yeah. From Voyager, Voyager. because Voyager did did explore that, that realm. Exactly. Bit, so yeah, so good yeah. for uh, uh again, I can't wait for I can't wait to finish this season actually. I think it's like ten episodes, nice. right? I think I'm about Very halfway. Short, yeah. So Very I'll short. finish this up and then I think they are gonna be out again in October this year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. just in time lah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, fantastic. Um, if you have, if you were like me and were disillusioned by Picard and, uh, Discovery, um, I would recommend that you jump back on the Star Trek train Same. because there are three, actually, three other very good shows out yeah. there. Strange New Worlds is probably the best of them all. Uh. It's an A plus show, mm-hmm. and these are very solid B plus shows. Yeah. Um, in Lower Decks and Prodigy, um, yeah. Um, and and by the way, since we're on the topic of Trek, yeah. right? Like, I would I would like to revise my uh Orville reading Same. now that I've seen the finale to uh, to attend. Uh, yes. Yeah, that was a that was a finale, man. <laughs> it felt like a series finale, right? Because they weren't renewed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they are not sure whether they're gonna get renewed, like, So they just fucking threw everything in there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it ended, all the loose ends were tied up. You know, uh, it was a beautiful story at the end. Um, they brought back the OGs later. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Just for one scene. <laughs> and it, it's a wedding. It's a wedding. You, know, <laughs> you, find a lot of, you find a lot of people you haven't met in a while at a wedding. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know? Yeah. Uh, so I think all in all, of you as a series is near perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, three seasons of near perfection. In fact, it's gotten better every yeah. season. To be honest, well, like for all mankind, but I think it's better than for all mankind also. Nah, I think season two is better than season three. Ooh. I'm for all mankind. I mean, like for all mankind doesn't get better every season. Like season two peaked. Oh hard. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, season three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. Season three it's is very good, good, but it's right? not as good as season it has two. problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um. Anyways, uh, that wraps it up for this episode of Genre Equality. Right. We'll be back next month to talk about French classics. That's me and Isa Fung. Oh. Yep. Uh, but that won't be sponsored. No, you're no, not no. there, but I don't think you no. want to be there anyway. Um, I, I don't want to be there. I'm 56, though. Huh? Behold 56, right? You, we are time traveling? Uh, I, I, are you fucking up the time space continuum? No. Oh, no, yeah, you're right. Behold 56 is next, next month. You're right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's October. Yeah, you'll be back in Behold 56. Don't sports, worry about huh? that. La. <laughs> As we always talk about, yeah, uh, we only talk about sports. Um, yeah, um, and General Equality Fifty Eight also. Uh, we'll be talking about what we do in the shadows. Yep. Season. That was a good season. Four? Yep, season four. Um, still running. Um, Harley Quinn season three. Mm-hmm. Uh, Primal season two. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. Too. Um, yeah, uh, I still will be back with Anime Corner. Then. Oh, nice. Yep. Uh, and I'll be continuing Quick Hits Classics because, as I've told Hardy recently, <laughs> yes. um, I've been on a big uh, space opera bridge. Uh, I finished Babylon 5, not just Babylon 5, but I've also read... Uh, no, no, I mean, oh. Babylon 5 franchise for now. I've also watched its two spin-off shows. Um, it's five TV movies. No way. And uh, all its books and comics. No um, so I finished the entire Babylon 5 uh, franchise. So Damn. I'll be talking about that as well. Um, I've also recently finished the Sparscape franchise too, but I'll save that for another genre quality. I don't want to sure, sure, sure. bog every episode with like, you know, if not, it'll be like 90 minutes of me talking about two space operas. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I'll be talking about Babylon 5, one of my favorite shows from the 90s. Yeah, uh, back, we can, uh, we can uh, join again. you for that. I mean, uh, I, I just finished Target. As you yeah, so um, yeah, I'll come back and try to finish Babylon 5 
Just the series though, not not like everything that you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, Aisa, by the way, like me, me and Hadi, right, yeah. have had this discussion about how we think this is the new renaissance mm. for space operas yeah, because yeah, yeah. Um, it feels like in the 1990s like there were like a dozen space opera a shows lot. running at once yeah. Yeah. Uh, the next generation Voyager mm. and Deep Space Nine all running at the same time yeah. Babylon 5 mm. Fast Cape Star- okay. uh, Stargate SG-1 yep. um, so many others and right now you know we're coming off the heels I know the expense is gone but the expense is part of this era yeah, um, sure. six fucking Star Trek shows you know again yeah. you know, um <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the Orville uh, for all mankind stuff like that you know do you think that this is a new renaissance for the space opera genre ooh um, I, I think we're getting there for sure right like uh, yeah. Trek will always hold a disproportionate uh, like monopoly strong on monopoly it, yeah. on the entire space mm-hmm. uh, yeah. we may I mean I don't know like, uh, okay Star Wars is visibly missing right from like, like, like this particular era just because like I mean they're I think, doing their TV shows and all uh. yeah the TV shows uh, some of them great some of them not so great yeah, yeah, right so, uh, so they are kind of like falling in, in kind of like reputation and also like if we're talking like back in the 90s as well like we didn't have Star Wars TV shows so it's hard oh, to kind of count know. them as part of that you know Correct. Uh, but like yeah I think a lot of time that we spent with so many seasons of the expanse, right? And the promise of people kind of either building upon that, uh, mm. it's it's definitely I think we're 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 approaching the epoch for sure. I think within the next mm. five years or so we're gonna see a ton of that. Uh some of which may or may not have been announced already. Uh but we'll be definitely keeping track of that at genre equality. So we'll see how that goes. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I think the, the bare minimum that you need, right, is three good Star Trek shows on at once, like yes. TNG, Deep Space Nine, and uh, Voyager. Uh, okay. Uh, right now, we have three good Star Trek shows running at once. Yep. We also have one show that is mirroring a Star Trek show, like DS9 and Babylon 5. In this case, it's The Orville yep. and Star Trek. Uh, we need the gritty political space drama, aka Babylon 5 slash The X-Men. <laughs> yes. Uh, the only thing that is missing is a Farscape, like a very wacky, zany puppet, puppet kind of thing. I don't know if we have that yet. We have Guardians of the Galaxy, but that's oh, in the cinema, yeah, so yeah. it's not the same. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like, uh, you know, given the history repeats itself, right? And it, already you have already laid out a very particular formula. Maybe we'll get one soon. Who knows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, a Farscape reboot, perhaps. Oh, yeah. that would be great. Yeah. That's super underrated, yeah. don't you think? Yeah, it's by the Jim Henson um, uh, company, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, really cool puppetry and all that. So as I rewatch DS9 and Voyager and uh, Babylon 5 and all that, the effects are really dated. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very, I mean, very dated. They're, yeah. they're, play, they're PlayStation 1 effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in watching Farscape, I was shocked to discover that it's not dated practical. at all because everything is practical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're all real puppets. Exactly. So yeah, that, that's the benefit of doing practical. For sure. You never sure. did. I'll be, I'll be super interested if we ever reach the point where we do get a, a Farscape uh, analog to to that era of space opera. Given that yeah. you've more or less caught up or rewatched everything back from that previous era, right? Yeah. It'll be super interesting yeah. discussion to just kind of see how things have changed in terms of its approach or like mm. the storytelling kind of tropes. Are we still following the same kind of like formula for that? Does it mm-hmm. still work in this day and age? You know, uh, all of that would be mm. like a super interesting discussion as and when that one kind of gap has been filled. 
Yeah. Uh, I'm still working my way through Stargate SG1 uh, because that one is it's a long. bit of a challenge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's like a, a dozen seasons a, over two shows. Yeah, it took me like months to get through that. There's fucking Atlantis also out there, you know, the spin off yeah. show. Oh. Which is, is very. Is, it, it was. It's also quite. Yeah. 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 I mean, like, I did enjoy Atlantis for the times that I kept up with it for maybe like a season or so. Yeah. But like SG1 mm. is a monster of a show, uh, for sure. It's like the yeah, original yeah. NCIS, and, and, you know? Yes. <laughs> And they have NCIS, yeah. the, the spin-offs, right? Or Law and Order and Law and Order spin-offs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and Stargate also had the <coughs> unfortunate timing of coming up alongside Battlestar Galactica, the reboot. Yeah. Mm. When BSG, the reboot, showed us that space operas can be more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Stargate SG-1 kind of harkened back to the 90s era. Yeah. So it felt out of date like, by the time BSG came out. Yeah. And then it lost popularity because of that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it still hit like 2004, 2005. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, that's when yeah. BSG started. Correct, exactly. Yeah, BSG premiered in turn three, right? I think so, yeah. Mm. Yeah, anyways, uh, we've kind of gotten uh, off topic already. Uh, <laughs> but thanks so much for listening, guys. This has been Hit Zero. I'm Hadi. I'm Isa. Goodbye, y'all. Bye. Ciao.